грузі червона калина похилилася. Чогось наша славна Україна зажурилася, а ми твою червону калину підіймемо. Anthems are sort of born by historical moment. There's there's a moment in which it happens. There's a moment that galvanizes people to come together, and the sound that that's the accompaniment to that, the soundtrack to that moment in history, is the anthem. The people who get to decide what the anthem is are the people who sing it and the people who rally around it. I think this is one of the areas where democracy really comes to the fore. It's how people use a song. It's what the feelings that they get from a song. It's not what the law says the song is. It's not a matter of having a competition or commissioning a great composer to write an anthem because it doesn't have that connection to the heart and history of a people. And that's why anthems are are sort of impossible to to write. You can't intend to write an anthem. Francis Scott Key did not write an anthem. He wrote a song that that the moment of history made into an anthem that people have used as an anthem. So it's become a song that's recruiting support for Ukraine's cause internationally. So much of what's allowing Ukraine's heroism to come to the fore and for them to defend their country is the support of the United States, of the NATO alliance countries. And it's the song is now vibrating really across the whole globe to recruit support for Ukraine. I mean, one of the things that's at stake in this invasion by Russia is, is Ukraine really Russian or is Ukraine something independent? Is it a country in and of itself or is it really part of something larger and doesn't have its own identity? And one thing the song is doing is it's asserting that Ukraine is a thing, that these people have their own history, have their own ideas, have their own national identity, their own symbols that bring them together. And I think it, it allows us both to relate to Ukrainians as individuals, but also to understand that they are a people and they have a culture unto themselves. Hey, Hey, Rise Up is the popular English title for this song. The original title from Ukrainian is The Red Viburnum in the Meadow. Again, just how does a song become an anthem? Well, Hey Hey is a perfect example. It took off like wildfire in early 2022. Ukrainian singer Andriy Kalivnyuk, dressed in military fatigues, recorded it standing out in the open on Sofia Square in Kyiv. Social media propelled his video around the world, and even though the song has roots back in the 1800s, the trenchant circumstances of the current Russian invasion made it a sudden new global sensation. Pink Floyd felt compelled to come out of a 28-year retirement to offer their own cover of it featuring Kalivnyuk. And now, even though it's not the legally designated national anthem of Ukraine, it is without any question now an anthem for that country. Think Battle Hymn of the Republic. Hey Hey has done what Glory Glory did in the American Civil War, and I say hallelujah that music like this can happen so spontaneously, so organically. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Our guest for this episode of Constant Wonder is Mark Clegg, author of Oh Say Can You Hear?, a cultural biography of the Star-Spangled Banner. He's a professor of musicology and American culture at the University of Michigan. Get ready for him to offer a far more convincing tale about our own national anthem than the origin story you're used to hearing. You know the one I mean. Rockets glaring all red, a tattered flag, and suddenly the muse descends upon a receptive Francis Scott Key. Well, there's a lot more to the story than just that. What's been happening in Ukraine politically, culturally, and artistically, is an incredibly useful starting point for our exploration of the Star-Spangled Banner. The similarities will become more clear as we go along. So let's go back to 1914, when Ukraine was struggling to become a nation. Hey, hey, rise up, or the red viburnum in the meadow, became a rallying cry 
for an ancient people holding almost desperately onto its unique identity in modern times. The lyrics refer to shedding the shackles of Moscow because the Russians did not see Ukrainians as a unique people, let alone see them as their equal among nations. They called Ukrainians little Russians, conveniently ignoring the historical fact that Kiev was a prosperous city 600 years before Moscow was anything more than a mere swamp. We're dealing here with an archetypal story, the story of an oppressed people resisting an oppressor. And what would a young United States in, oh, let's say, 1812, not so long after throwing off British shackles in the War of Independence, well, what would a United States remember about that? In 1812, a former colony, called the United States, was having déjà vu all over again with that paternalistic British Empire, an empire which viewed them, the Americans, as barely a country, not worthy of any real respect. Here's just one example for you. The British Navy had been boarding American merchant ships, seizing sailors, American sailors, and forcing them into the British Navy, as if to say, we're still in charge. You're not as independent as you think you are, and we're just as sovereign as we think we are. Rule Britannia. Britannia rule the waves. Britons never, never shall be slaves. Well, that song was written in 1740 and was already legendary by the War of 1812. I doubt it was very popular on this side of the pond. The British-American collision that we call the War of 1812 was fought to kind of a stalemate ending in 1814, but it was a stalemate that established emphatically that the United States was an equal. If we didn't exactly win the war, we won the point. But that moral victory hadn't yet been secured when Francis Scott Key witnessed, in September of 1814, the bombing of Fort McHenry in Baltimore. The British had just burned the White House and sacked Washington. Baltimore was next in line. It was a very scary moment to be an American. The lyrics that Key wrote, later to become an anthem, leaned very heavily on this deep sense of uncertainty. Could we really win? Were we strong enough? Was heaven on our side? Through all the smoke and vapor, can anybody still see the banner? Is it still there, waving, or the land of the free and the home of the brave? Few national questions are ever more poignant because a question like this strikes at the heart of what it means to be a nation. Is national status settled? Are we who we think we are? And is that identity recognized and accepted by other sovereign nations? When Francis Scott Key wrote his lyrics, this pivotal question still hung in the air. The outcome was not known. And to be perfectly honest with you, think about this for just a moment. Is the question really settled even today? After all our battles and strife, foreign and domestic, does our national anthem pose a closed question or an open one? I mean, it's not only our relationship to the song and our relationship to our feelings about the country, but it's where the country is, right? One of my things my book tries to do in telling a history of the Star-Spangled Banner is is to treat the Star-Spangled Banner as a person, in a sense, as, as this kind of witness to history. I mean, it was present at the Battle of Baltimore, it was present in the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, you know, all these sort of pivotal moments in American history, the song was there. And how does this song, in a sense, amplify and create those relationships that people have with that moment? And I think there's that the chemical reaction is not only between us as individuals and the musical object or, or the, the song, but between that and the context and we're in and the feelings we bring to it. And that changes, right? And that's that dynamism that gives meaning and helps us interpret what's going on in our world. The Star Spangled Banner isn't a thing, it's an activity. It isn't just something that's static, like it's always the same. Actually, it changes because our experience and the world around it is changing. Yeah, I think really the pivotal moment for the Star Spangled Banner is actually July 4th, 1861. Because it's at that moment, at the very beginning of the Civil War, that the, the flag, the Star Spangled Banner, the flag, Old Glory, becomes the symbol of union. Lincoln very intentionally does not remove any stars from the flag. 
It becomes a symbol of the preservation of union, the end of slavery. And it's that moment that the Star Spangled Banner really becomes the rallying cry of the nation. So when Congress, as so often happens, get around to making the anthem official in 1931, they're really actually just affirming something that had been true for almost 70 years. So what makes an anthem really is sort of historical accident. It's the collective passion of a people. It's not bill that goes through Congress. It's one of the other things, if we're going to change the anthem, we really have to somehow get people to agree to that. It's not going to be about someone passing a law or, you know, somebody changing, changing the rules. It's really going to be about something heroic, something amazing happening that brings us together as a nation. And I think that's what happened when the flag becomes the symbol of nation in the Civil War. A lot of people have inherited, including myself here, inherited this story of, of the origin, uh, Francis Scott Key and the Battle of Baltimore. It is not really a tidy story in terms of the poet is inspired, the muse strikes, the pen comes to paper, it's done in the night. That didn't happen, did it? Not exactly in that way. I mean, I think that mythology is something I remember as a kid too. I mean, I was I was born in the later 1960s and I was a kid in 1976 for the U.S. Bicentennial. And I think my love of the nation in many ways comes from that moment as a kid, like riding my bicycle around with its red, white, and blue streamers and sort of buying in hook, line, and sinker to the ideals of the country of freedom and equality of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and so that story of Francis Scott Key of like seeing this heroic moment of the flag still being there after 24 hours of bombardment of Fort McHenry and sort of having this flash of inspiration turns out not to be exactly true. I mean, one thing, he was not on a British ship. He was on his own American ship. He was under guard and couldn't leave. But the British really expected to, to beat Baltimore's defenses in a matter of hours. They had walked into Washington, D.C. almost unopposed. You know, a month earlier, they had burned the federal buildings, the White House, the Capitol building to the ground. They really saw the Americans as disorganized, as not having a strong military. Baltimore was different, however. Baltimore was actually the third largest city in the United States in 1814. They had a, a huge navy. I mean, and Britain was really going for revenge because all of these sort of privateers, these ships that had been harassing um, British shipping came out of Baltimore, and they really wanted to punish Baltimore and burn the city to the ground. The fact that, that Baltimore survived, that McHenry held firm, that the defenses of the city held firm, I mean, for Francis Scott Key, that was a kind of miracle. You know, generally, that story of that flash of inspiration is where we stop telling the story. We're not interested in what happens after that. We're not really interested in, in the 200 years of history that follow the way the anthem has worked in American life. But what I find amazing is that Francis Scott Key is actually stuck on his boat for three days. So he doesn't get to leave. He's still under guard. He's there with the U.S. agent of prisoner exchange. They're doing diplomatic work. And so he's stuck there with nothing to do. So what happens when you put a poet in a place with nothing to do and boredom, right? He's going to write some poetry. And in this case, he writes a song. One of the things we don't really know today is this tradition of, of sort of topical songwriting, of writing reflections on your day-to-day -day experience in song. So if you think back 200 years ago, no recording, right? You can't put on Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tam Terrell. I mean, there, there's no recording technology, right? So if you're going to make music, you're going to have to sing it yourself. And so people participated in music in a much different way. It's also really expensive to, to print sheet music, to, to actually engrave the notes. You have to have skills, you have to have access to instrument. But singing in church from a church hymnal, singing words to a well-known melodies, this is daily practice for most Americans. So there was this practice called newspaper balladry or broadside balladry, where pretty much everyday citizens would write responses to things in their life, things in American political life, by writing new words to a very small set of standard melodies. One of these melodies was Yankee Doodle. Another melody is what we know today as the Star Spangled Banner, which at that point was known as the Anacreontic Song. It actually goes back to England, you know, right around the time of our own revolution. And it was a particularly wordy, elevated literary um, genre. This, this, you know, as opposed to Yankee Doodle, which is kind of an insult song, really short, clippy phrases. The Star Spangled Banner has really long phrases. It has lots of fancy words. Um, and that was typical of it. So if you were writing political commentary, often you wrote it to this melody known today as the Star Spangled Banner. But this was a way of talking publicly about 
day-to-day life. So if there were um, political campaign songs for like Thomas Jefferson, there were Fourth of July songs, there were songs celebrating like individual anniversaries, a husband would write to a wife. I mean, there are all these ways in which song was part of the way, again, of processing your emotions, of understanding the world, of creating community. And so you would often sing these things at like political rallies. And so one of, you know, one of the things that he did was to do the obvious really was he was witness to this momentous moment, right? To just watching this miraculous defense of Baltimore, he had a front row seat and he was helping Americans understand what it felt like to be there. I mean, oftentimes these broadside ballads are talked about as like the town crier in the middle of the square explaining, you know, the day's events for people who were illiterate and maybe didn't read the newspaper. I don't think that's so much the case with Broadside Ballad. They're not processing what happened. If you wanted to know who won the battle, you'd just say, who won? We'd say, the Americans, it's unbelievable. But what song does, it brings emotion and ideas together. So what the Star Spangled Banner tells you is what it felt like to be at this pivotal moment in American history where the nation was saved, right? Where had we lost that battle in what's sometimes called the second War of Independence, right? The War of 1812, which, you know, today is not a real big thing in the in the feature of American history because we won, right? Things stayed the same. But had we lost that battle, things would not have stayed the same, right? England would have would have just been able to sue for peace. Who knows what kind of concessions they would have asked for? You know, this was a kind of echo of the, the American Revolution. So that moment of sort of pride, of awe at the heroism of the defenders of Fort McHenry, for key, really God had smiled upon this young nation and really said this, this nation should thrive. I mean, so for him, it was a big emotional moment. And it's that emotion that's in that song. Here's something I learned from Mark Clegg. The Star-Spangled Banner wasn't just written by Key for an existing popular tune that he knew. He wrote it for a popular tune that he knew and everybody knew had done a whole lot of work already for a passel of different lyrics. Uh, Kind of a go-to melody, an all-purpose container, one-size-fits-all, a shell. This is how things were done back then. Certain tunes served like a frame around a billboard. People just expected that whatever the current buzz might be could be dolled up with a familiar tune, and whatever those words were would get swapped out with whatever came along as the the next latest thing. And because of this cultural practice with certain very familiar melodies, it seems likely that Francis Scott Key didn't really mean for his words to be the last word, if that makes sense. Francis Scott Key did not write a national anthem. I mean, he was not trying to write a singular song that would last forever and be like this sacred icon. He was trying to basically comment on what's happening right now and, uh, you know, reflect that moment. And he very much expected that his song would be ephemeral, that it would go away, that people would write new songs about new heroic events in American history. And so in a, in a way, we've totally changed the rules on how th- his song works. We've turned it from a song about a victory, about a particular battle, that he actually gave the title Defense of Fort McHenry, right? We've changed that song and called it the Star Spangled Banner and made it into a national anthem. But that key was trying to bring people together to unify people at a very divided time politically, right? There were a lot of pro-British people and there were a lot of uh, pro-French people in American politics in sort of the first three or four decades of our history. Um, Key had been on the pro-British side. I mean, that's how he was raised. His his uncle was a British lawyer. His father was from Britain. Um, so he was really disillusioned about how basically nasty the British um, leaders were because he was there to negotiate the release of a, a prisoner, right? Um, and so it's it's his disgust, his frustration that's in that in that lyric, but he absolutely did not intend to create a national anthem. One of the amazing parts of my research, and this even stunned me as I have found almost 600 sets of lyrics that have been sung to the tune we know as the Star Spangled Banner in American history. And if you line them up from earliest to the most recent, I mean, the most recent is is from this year. Um, So this is a, a tradition that continues. But the earliest one is 1790, you know, which is like 24 years before the Star Spangled Banner was written. And if you line them up from first to last, Francis Scott Key's The Star Spangled Banner is number 136, Right. So he's not starting something. He's joining a conversation about the future of the country, about American patriotism, about what it means to be American. And he's adding his two bits. But he expected number 137, 38, 39 to then carry the conversation that other people would add their their comments and their ideas. Now, you seem to make a point that he 
thought America was kind of an open-ended question, just like the question in the lyrics of the, the anthem, is the flag still there, is never really totally resolved in the, in the text. You're absolutely right. So that first verse that we sang at every sporting event, amazingly enough, it ends with a question mark, right? Key is asking, is the country still there? Like, are we free? Are we brave enough to seize this moment to save the nation? And that question in the first verse is unresolved. Like, he doesn't have an answer. There, it is answered in verses, in the next verse, in verse two. But I think when we sing the anthem today, we're really actually asking a question about us today. Like, do we remain as free and as brave as we need to be to realize the potential of American democracy? And that's that's really why, for me, this anthem is not a dead document. It's not a frozen document. It's not a sacred, you know, unchanging icon. It's actually a sacred process, a sacred trust of us as citizens. So this is this song when we sing it and that question mark. For me, it's a call to citizenship. It's a call to do something to fulfill those ideals, those promises that are made in that that you know tagline, those last two lines. Let's say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? That particular line is repeated at the end of each verse. And in the 19th century, it would have been sung by a solo singer and then echoed back by the crowd. Like the way we use the anthem now, we all sing it together, or maybe more often than not, we all just listen to someone else sing it together. Um, in the 19th century, what would have happened is a solo singer who had a pretty excellent voice and can sing all those high notes, right? That person would sing the song and then the crowd would echo back those last two lines. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home and brave? So it was a way of recruiting support, right? So you you made this statement. Key said, oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? And then the, the whole crowd would then echo that line back to affirm and to, to add emphasis to that last line. Now, there is something parallel going on to the rallying of nationalistic or patriotic fervor and everybody being on the same page. The The parallel track is the aspect of protest, the uh, the parodying even of, of... Would you tell us who was the first person to uh, kind of object to this, uh, the, the public collective ritual of doing this anthem together? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, probably the, the very first time I know, at least in my lifetime, that it became controversial was through a basketball game, right? The Denver Nuggets had a guard named Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who was sort of like Colin Kaepernick and was, was sort of escaping or avoiding the Star Spangled Banner ritual at the beginning of his games. He was actually staying in the locker room. And then like Kaepernick again, some reporter noticed and said, "Where, where's the guard for the Nuggets? Why isn't he out there? And then that became a huge controversy of people saying why he wasn't there. And he was interviewed and like Kaepernick's, you know, had sort of personal, religious and political objections to the Star Spangled Banner as representing a country that wasn't living up to his ideals in his view. So that was probably the, you know, one of those times, I think, maybe most famously in 1968 at the Mexico City Olympics, um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, you know, raised their fists in a black, what's interpreted as a black power salute. They called it a human rights salute. You know, that was a, probably one of the other times in which the anthem and the, this ceremony internationally became a flashpoint of controversy. But I, I would say that protest is really part of the history of the anthem. I mean, the earliest sort of protest lyrics that I trace from, you know, these other people writing other lyrics go back to the 1830s and 40s. And they're um, protest lyrics over slavery, their protest lyrics over violence against women, their protest lyrics over sort of inappropriate discipline in the military, flogging on U.S. Navy ships. So as Key's song became more and more associated with the country, if you wanted to debate and create a conversation about how does what it means to be American, how is that require a shift in policy, a shift in behavior. Um, temperance was a was probably maybe the most popular type of alternate lyric written to the anthem melody, particularly in the 19th century. There were all sorts of temperance lyrics starting in 1840, you know, calling for the abolition of alcohol, which of course became the, the 19th Amendment in the Prohibition era, or, or the 20th Amendment, I guess. So it's it, there is a long history of protest, and I would even say Francis Scott Key was protesting when he wrote the lyric to start with, right? Because he, he's writing a lyric of unity, calling for a strong country at a time in which the country is divided and at a time in which the military is very weak, right? I mean, 
the British had just marched all over Washington, D.C. and burned the federal buildings to the ground. We were not a strong country. We were not a unified country. After World War II, right, in some ways, Key's lyric becomes prophetic. It describes this strong, powerful country. And I think today when we sing the anthem, we think of this as like, it's always been this way. It's, it's always stated who we are. But in fact, the country has changed a lot. And I think Francis Scott Key himself was protesting. So for me, um, without protest, there is no dialogue about the anthem. That actually the history of the anthem is a history of you know, a debate about the country, about how it should be sung, about when it should be sung, about what words should be sung even. So that's, it's a, that's part of the fascinating story. That's why I'm so interested in it. Is there possibly a way you could look at this particular musical artifact and say it became quite powerful because it took the flag as a symbol and then the power of music as a symbol and put them together, the lyrics actually focus on the symbol, which is the flag. So it's a, it becomes a symbol looking at a symbol, and, and that's kind of doing double duty, you know? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one, it's this weird historical accident that out of these 600-some lyrics about that are sung in American history to the tune, right, we only remember this one. And I think part of the reason we remember it is because Francis Scott Key's lyric is pretty abstract, right? As you say, it's just basically a a symbolic statement talking about other symbolic statements, right? It's a song talking about a flag. And one of the interesting things about, you know, you think about Francis Scott Key stuck on that boat for three days trying to write a song about a battle that he's observed, right? So he knows that there was all sorts of gunfire and rockets and bombs. He knows that the flag is still there, that America has won, right? That the British were foiled in their attempts to defeat the fort, get into Baltimore Harbor and defeat the city. But he doesn't know anything else. I mean, there's no radio feed, there's no Twitter, there's no information that he has about what actually happened, right? So he doesn't know if who was killed in the American side. He doesn't know, you know, what kind of strategy was done. He doesn't really know what the troops were moving on the ground. He's been stuck in a boat, you know, to observe it. Um, but all he's seen is what you could see from the Patapska River. So he has to write in abstractions. He has to write in ways that talk about the feeling and the sort of the big ideas about the nation, about his beliefs and hopes for the nation. But most of these lyrics are actually very specific. They get very topical. They talk about the particular politicians that are involved. There's three songs, for example, written for Abraham Lincoln's election campaign in 1860. They all talk about Honest Abe and and this kind of thing. And you, that can't be a national anthem because it talks about one person, right? It wouldn't represent everybody. So it's it's the fact that, that he knows so little about the battle except what he's been able to see, which is just the, the results, really, and, the, and the, the gunfire, that his song was abstract enough that it could transcend time. If an anthem is calculated by somebody somewhere, I don't know, not maybe not by <laughs> Francis Scott Key, but if, it's, if it has this unifying function, at least ostensibly, it can also be a sword that divides. And I, I think of your treatment of translations of the text into other languages. It, it seems that a lot of people want to own the flag and wrap themselves in it, and they want to wrap themselves in this music too. Yeah, no, I talk about, I actually have a whole chapter of the book, which is just about translations. And this, this surprised me too. I mean, I, I knew that there were several, um, but I didn't know that there was over 100 of them. Um, in 40 different languages. And I didn't know the, the pivotal role they played in American history. The very first one that I've been able to find is actually from Texas. And it's, it's from New Braunfels, Texas, which was a German community in Texas. 1851, uh, first time that I can find that the anthem was translated into another language, in this case, German. Interestingly, this text becomes um, reprinted in the 1860s in New York. And it's used as a recruiting tool for the Union Army. So one of the things I didn't know is that 20% of the Union Army was actually made up of German-speaking immigrants to this country. They joined the Union Army in great numbers, and many of the Union troops actually spoke German as the language of command, right? So one of the, the points I think that all these translations make is that, you know, speaking English is not a prerequisite for being a loyal American. There were lots of loyal Americans who spoke in many, many different languages. And that in the history of our country, we've actually intentionally translated the anthem into other languages to welcome new people to our nation. And so we think of the anthem often as things that keep people away. But the history of the anthem is actually both creating a sense of community, but also welcoming new people to the community. 
One of these new members in the community kind of wore out his welcome, at least with a few folks, when he engaged as an artist with our national anthem. He tinkered with it. He, well, Maybe you could say he tweaked it just a little, but he would say that he improved it. He did say he improved it, and maybe he did. His name, Igor Stravinsky. Here on Constant Wonder, we shoot for accuracy, and this story of Stravinsky ostensibly having defamed or tarnished or somehow sullied our national anthem, that's a story that's been around for a while. You may know him as one of the 20th century's most famous or infamous composers because of his rite of spring. What a sensation. What a scandal. The Firebird Suite. People just expected Stravinsky's music to be edgy, provocative, at the very least, unconventional. It was part of his reputation. He was a Russian emigre to the United States, having fled Europe in 1939. By 1941, circumstances led him to produce a new arrangement of our anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. And here's what he did. He changed the melody's harmonization, and he made just a few minor adjustments to parts of the rhythm. But it did not take long for a vocal contingent to claim that this Russian immigrant had tampered with it. The Boston Symphony programmed his version in 1944, and he was there to conduct it. Things did not go well. I first heard about this when I was a graduate student, actually, and one of my friends sort of brought me this really fuzzy photocopy of this haggard-looking composer, Igor Stravinsky, and said, this is his mugshot, right, from when he was arrested in Boston for desecrating the national anthem. But this is a myth. He wasn't arrested. There is a photo of him, and it does look like a mugshot. It even says Boston police on it, but most likely this was for a passport or a driver's license. You know, police departments used to handle photos for these purposes. But it is true that the Boston police had a run-in with Stravinsky at the Boston Symphony in 1944. They showed up in the audience, glowering, daring him to play his arrangement, planning to cite him, fine him, not arrest him, if he crossed the line, because uh, there was something, some obscure wording somewhere in the Boston city code. Stravinsky moved to the United States, became a citizen. I think there's two things going on. One, it's his own gratitude to the country for serving as a refuge for him during World War II because he, he escaped from Europe, he escaped from war, come to the United States. And it was at that moment that he heard the national anthem and said, I can do it better. I can make this a great hymn to the nation. He really expected this would become the standard version of the Star Spangled Banner. And it's, it's beautiful. But he sort of missed the point. He missed the spirit of the times because, of course, what happens in the fall of 1941? He does this for July 4th, 1941. But in, in December, we have Pearl Harbor, right? And so the whole country changes. We're all on a war footing. We want a, a national anthem that's not a peace hymn like he had written, a sort of sacred song to the nation. We needed something that would rally people together, that would show our strength and our power. And so this much more sort of militaristic version that was actually arranged in World War I by another conductor-composer named Walter Damrosch was the prevailing version. I think, in a sense, Stravinsky created this version that's just too beautiful. But he was also, of course, Russian. And we had this sort of, you know, switching signs and allegiance with Russia. And so whereas Stravinsky meant it as a way, in some ways, of expressing his own devotion to the country, his own gratitude, but also establishing him as a loyal American. People did not interpret it in that way. They saw him as potentially with the enemy. And so these rumors circulated that he was somehow using these advanced harmonies. And he, of course, was known as a modern composer, composer of the right of spring. He was seen as, as manipulating the American people with these kind of communist harmonies or something. I think the real reason it failed is it didn't fit the tenor of the times. We needed a strong anthem, not a church hymn during World War II. 
Most Americans would never hear Stravinsky's arrangement, but they did know his Rite of Spring, if only from the Disney movie Fantasia, which had been released in 1940. This isn't exactly sweet, melodic, reassuring music, now is it? Is this really what people thought he might be up to? Something like this with a star-spangled banner? There's more than a little whiplash in all of this because the brutal, violent, angular music from the Rite of Spring, well, that's precisely the opposite character from his reverential, peaceful, hymn-like version of our national anthem. But precisely its inoffensiveness, Clegg says, is probably what offended American sensibilities of that era, the sensibilities of a country engaged in the world war. And in the great tradition of popular opinion, average Americans could simultaneously say they had never heard Stravinsky's arrangement and were quite certain they hated it. How did this talented composer find himself in such a hot mess? Well, few things are perhaps quite as American as fighting over our national symbols, be it flag or anthem. But this is a fact that would have been cold comfort to Stravinsky, who, while conducting his arrangement with the Boston Symphony, had turned toward the audience to conduct them singing their national song, and they refrained. They simply sat there mute. Talk about awkward. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I happen to be old enough to remember Roseanne Barr, whose stock in trade has always been provocation, performing a musical massacre on the anthem in a ballpark scandal. This was back in 1990. A lot of folks bristled. To my knowledge, nobody called the police. And just the summer before her very irreverent, if not unpatriotic, stunt, so happens the Supreme Court had ruled that flag burning is free speech. Four and a half decades earlier, Stravinsky had been taken to task for merely changing a few chords and rhythms. In America, it's no holds barred for... Roseanne Barr, no mandatory reverence expected from anybody, actually. But there's always the court of public opinion. Yeah, one of the interesting things, and I think it gives me some hope to our current political environment, is this history of fighting over the nation's symbol actually goes back to 1798. It goes back to the Civil War. There are lots of times in which different um, people, different groups and political parties have claimed to be the real Americans, and they claim the anthem and the flag as their symbols and nobody else's symbols. And so, and that has never worked. It's, it's always been a case that these symbols have transcended any one political faction or party. So in the beginning of the Civil War, for example, the Confederacy claimed that, you know, it was the North that was breaking the rules. They, they were breaking the compact by advocating the end of slavery, and therefore the real America was actually the Confederacy. And uh, so there was an attempt among some, and actually at the very first sort of Confederate Congress, to say we should keep the flag and we should keep this, the Star Spangled Banner um, as our own. And there was some debate about that. And of course, the big problem was the Union was also carrying that flag around. So, you know, these, these symbols stayed with the North. They didn't go to the, go to the South at that point. But it's, it is, I think, one of the cool things about the anthem and part of the reason why I'm fascinated by it are all these moments of controversy. In some ways, the, the song serves as a kind of sounding board, as a, as a resonator of historical controversy. You can hear the social tension in our society by the debates about who is singing it, how they're singing it, is it traditional, is it not traditional. It doesn't actually tell you necessarily that much about the song, but it tells you a lot about the moment, that moment in history. And that's why I say the song is a kind of witness to history. It resonates the issues of its day. And it, it makes audible conflict, right? So when, when Colin Kaepernick knelt, for example, in the football field, it created a huge dissonance. It upset a lot of people, right? That, that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be looking like everybody else. We're supposed to have this moment of unity. And he's creating a statement of disunity by doing something different, right? But it's because he's not really actually protesting the song, right? He's protesting the country not living up to its ideals in his view. And so when he, but when he does that, it makes a lot of people mad, right? But it's that dissonance, that ability of making the, the social struggle, the social conflict audible or visible in his case, that I think is part of the power of the song today. What we need to do is, in my view, is, is really to, to live up to the ideals of the song. And once, once we do, then, then that song will ring true for many more people in America. Well, you've made the point that this protest 
uh, is not a new thing. And it goes way back in our uh, Star Spangled protest is not newfangled. It's uh, we got we got to talk about Jimi Hendrix, for example. Yeah, that's this is my all time favorite version. I mean, I just think Jimi Hendrix, you know, the way he used the anthem at Woodstock probably is the preeminent one. And this is really actually how I got into this whole story. Really, was I teach a course for students at the University of Michigan on the history of music in the United States. And I start off with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock playing the Star Spangled Banner. And I ask the students, like, what is going on, right? Is this protest? Is this patriotic? You know, what kind of messages are being sent? And I'm trying to make a larger point about music's ability to send social messages at all, right, by this really dramatic version. So what's cool about Hendrix is if you watch it, and now it's really easy to find. It's on YouTube. You can just search for Hendrix, uh, Woodstock, Star Spangled Banner. If you say the words to yourself softly as he's playing, you'll realize what he's doing is not burning the flag or insulting the song. What he's doing is he's singing the song on his guitar. It's when he departs from the melody, he's actually illustrating the lyrics, right? So when you get to Rocket's Red Glare and the bombs bursting in air is where he gets all these crazy feedback-strewn pyrotechnics on the guitar that he was famous for as a musician. But they are to depict not only Francis Scott Key's lyric in the battle, you know, depicting this moment in the 1960s of racial conflict, Martin Luther King's assassination, rioting in the streets. But he's and then he's also depicting what's happening in Vietnam. And one of the things that's actually maybe less known about Hendrix is that he was a member of the military. He was a part of the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles paratroopers. And for him, this was an important part of his identity. So at at the moment that he's playing it. In Woodstock, friends of his from his unit are in Vietnam under fire and being wounded, right? So he's he's honoring them as he's also pointing out that the use of, of troops in this, what, what he's starting to see as an unjust war more and more, and the whole country is turning against it, is calling attention to that. And then, of course, he plays Taps, which honors those troops. But interestingly, then he comes back and he plays the melody as it's written, pretty much. In tune, really strong, this kind of firm patriotic statement. So for me, what he's really doing is combining these different sonic symbols to, to create a unified statement of protest and patriotism, right? That the, the sense is you can be loyal to the country and you can still be wanting to, to change things on the ground. Mark, if you would talk to me about competitors, there's there's other options that have been out there. And I grew up with many of them. I remember walking through the Teutoburger Forest in Germany and hearing somebody singing, I was born in the USA, and at the top of his lungs, hiking through the woods. And he wasn't born, I don't think, in the USA, but I don't know. There are many songs that have been candidates for the national anthem. America the Beautiful is probably the, the one I hear people talk about the most as a sort of a fantastic anthem. It's just a beautiful song. God Bless America, Yankee Doodle. The, in the 19th century, sort of the first national anthem, in a sense, was a song called Hail Columbia, which we barely remember today. Yes, after all these years, the United States Navy Band still knows how to strike up Hail Columbia, whether or not anybody would recognize it. It's band music, bright, peppy, and anodyne enough to be forgettable. Which means that 
At the Olympics, it could slip right in as the anthem of most any country except your own. I like to think that the Star Spangled Banner offers a little more than that, that it doesn't blend into the crowd quite so easily, but I'm biased. I grew up with it and can't leave my upbringing out of the picture when doing a comparative assessment, when evaluating it. You know, there was a big debate in the 1920s before it became official in 31 about whether the Star Spangled Banner was appropriate. And a lot of people didn't like the Star Spangled Banner. Music teachers didn't like it because it was too hard to sing. Nationalists didn't like it because the song was of English origin. The melody was came from England, so it wasn't even American. Um, pacifists didn't like it because it talked about war. Um, prohibitionists didn't like it because the melody had also been used for drinking songs. So there was lots of reasons to hate the Star Spangled Banner. So alternatives were proposed and debated, but really nothing even had a chance. as Because as I said, the Star Spangled Banner had been functioning as the national anthem in popular culture really since the Civil War. It was the sacrifice of the blood and devotion of Americans in the Civil War that, that preserved the Union that made the song sacred. And I think that historical weight that you know is not something that America the Beautiful has. I mean, it's a gorgeous song. And it, in some ways, it's a lot less complicated because we're talking about the natural beauty of the country. You know, so politically, it's a little safer territory, maybe, you know. But when you need a song that brings people together, the Star Spangled Banner always wins, always rises to the top. And I think it's it's partially because of the text, but I think a lot of it is actually the music. Like people often say about the Star Spangled Banner that it's too hard to sing. Right, this, the high, notes are too high. Like, how could we have this as our national anthem? You know, you compare that to something like, you know, "God Save the Queen," right? Which is, to me, is almost a dirge. Right? It's just sort of, da, 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 da. that is not something that gets you excited that you rally around. song, the, the United States National Anthem, is a song that takes heroism to sing. The, the difficulty of that song, the sort of energy of that song, you have to commit to that. You have to go for it to make that song happen, to hit those high notes. to have passion to make that song work. And I think the athleticism actually is what sort of gives it that spark of American identity. And it's when the nation is in crisis, when there's a flood, you need people to rally together, when there's a natural disaster, when there's a war, when you need people to make sacrifices to come together as a community, the Star Spangled Banner and the sort of musical passion that that melody imbues is I think what wins the day. And just to emphasize how Mark Clegg says this anthem has been an expression of welcome to recent arrivals in the American community, while at the same time forcefully conveying national unity in the face of external threats, well, here's seven-year-old Malaya Emma Chandrawijaya again, closing out her interpretation at a Major League Soccer game hosted by the LA Galaxy. You know, I'm gradually piecing together a little fantasy in which a world-renowned Russian composer is right there in the crowd witnessing the virtuosity of this little vocal athlete who happens to be of Indonesian and Chinese ancestry and who speaks both of these languages in addition to English. Yes, I suspect Igor Stravinsky would like a word. But actually, I'm about to give Mark Clegg the final word today. Do you dare say that you have been moved by the national anthem? Oh, on more than one occasion. Oh, I've I have listened to this 
Star Spangled Banner probably a billion times, it feels like, um, and including listening to like a Hendrix recording or Aretha Franklin or Whitney Houston over and over and over and over again. And for me, it never grows old. I mean, my relationship to the song only deepens through repetition. And I think one of the interesting things about the song is that it actually can express a lot of different emotions, right? So you can play the song in a very somber, slow way at, for instance, a, fu- a military funeral, or you can play it in a really upbeat, um, happy way at, say, a graduation ceremony or, or a victory celebration. Or, you know, so there, there are these different emotions that are conveyed in the song that, again, resonate with its time and place. But this, the song has been played at all sorts of different tempos and all sorts of different styles, sort of expressing all sorts of different ideas and identities. And it's that flexibility for me, which is the magic of the song. And, and in fact, like one of the things which I love about the song is that in 1931, when they made it the official anthem, they did not put a musical text with that bill. It just says the song known as the Star Spangled Banner is the national anthem of the United States. So there's no lyric and there's no musical arrangement that's the official one. And so that means that anything you do is the national anthem. And for me, that's essential because if you if we had a law that said this is the only way you could sing it, the only tempo it had to be, the only key it could be in, if you were to perform the anthem in exactly that way, it wouldn't express patriotism. It wouldn't express love of country. It would express obedience, right? You'd just be doing what you had to do because you had no choice. And so one of the important things that I think about the anthem and protest is that we have to allow for differences of opinion to come through the anthem because it also allows for people to express a sincere love of the country. And, and if, you, if you couldn't protest with the anthem, then you also couldn't express a sincere love, a sincere patriotism, because you'd only be allowed to do it one way. And that way would, in a sense, become meaningless. So the flexibility in the anthem is really its magic and power. Sincere thank you to Mark Clegg, our guest today. Clegg is author of Oh Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the Star-Spangled Banner. He's a professor of musicology and American culture at the University of Michigan. Today's episode was produced by Eric Schultzka and Mamie Teeples. Sound designed by Parker Schmidt, Mitchell Towsley, and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.